Jeffrey Valpin, the team on the brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly appearance, is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And with regard to this particular episode, we have uh, we have achieved, listener, uh, we have achieved a first in the, uh, the the history, the long and esteemed history of Fangraphs Audio. Uh, what that first is or has been has been uh, it's the first ever edition. Of Fangraphs Audio, I believe it's episode 321 or 2, maybe 322. First ever edition of Fangraphs Audio that has been shortened by rain, or at least uh, at least shortened uh, or canceled because of weather. In fact, when I began recording this episode with Dave Cameron, uh, there was quite a um, substantial thunderstorm in the greater Madison area. Of course, I live in Madison, Wisconsin. There was a greater there was quite a thunderstorm in the greater Madison area. And this seemed, uh, when lightning was striking, uh, it seemed to be creating interference with my phone lines or something about this uh, such that it was ruining my internet connection and thus severing uh, my connection via Skype uh, with, with uh, Fangraphs Managing Editor Dave Cameron. Uh, what this was causing was uh, for my internet to go off for several minutes, and when it would come back, I would talk to Dave Cameron again, uh, and then uh, lightning would strike again, and we would repeat the process. Uh, it was uh, annoying for us, and so eventually I said, uh, Dave Cameron, uh, you have important things to do. You have important things to do. Uh, I'll let you do them. Uh, so what I've resolved to do uh, for the sake of this episode of Fangraphs Audio uh, is to leave all of the audio as it was, all the four or five parts or whatever it was, uh, uh, to signify, however, uh, to represent those moments when lightning um, forced us to pause and uh, reset, as it were, I have inserted a, a lightning sound effect from the internet. You can get these lightning sound effects from the internet. What I've done is I get a lightning sound effect from the internet, and I've put it there to represent the moments at which lightning, real lightning, uh, severed our connection, forced us to stop annoying all that. So uh, that's that's what this is. This is the first... I'm not even going to talk about the content. You, you'll get it. This is the first, though, uh, rain-shortened episode of of the podcast in Fangraphs Audio history. This is a mo- this is a first. You will, you listener on the ground floor for this. That's what it is. It is. Uh, let me say it again. It's Fangraphs Audio features Dave Cameron in a rain shortened appearance, and it begins right now. Average, would you? I mean, roughly average. Uh, sure. Like relative to your baseline, you'd say that you're doing about the same as usual. Yes. Is this like an extended level check? You're just going to keep asking me the same question over and over. <laughs> yeah, that's basically what it is. At least I'm not saying sibilance, which I believe is something that people say. Uh, yeah. So it looks like I am recording for real, and uh, um, we can begin. We can begin. You tweeted out. Let's see. I think this is after Chris Davis had hit four home runs in his first four games. Um, yes. I think that you tweeted something with regard to Chris Shelton, who had done something maybe in, well, I forget precisely what year, but I think it was when he was a Tiger, was it not? Yeah, 2006. The uh, tweet was actually a takeoff of uh, uh, Greg Johns, who's a cover of the Mariners for MLB.com, and tweeted that Mike Morse had a chance to become the first player since Chris Shelton hit five home runs in his team's first five games. Yeah, uh, Shelton actually hit, I think, five home runs in the team's first four games, and then he hit a couple of triples. So he he added quite himself 
had a goal quite a start to the 2006 season. Right, but then the uh, his the rest of the 2006 season for Chris Shelton uh, was remarkably Chris Shelton-like, I think. Yeah, he was uh, not very good. Right, well, which is to say, I mean, Chris Shelton could had some offensive game, uh, but relative to his his defense, it was probably not enough to make him a major. Yeah, I mean, right. As a bat only player, the bat has to be pretty good. And for a week, his bat was amazing, and then for the rest of his life, it was not as amazing. Right. Okay. So here's the thing. Oh, uh, th- there's just lightning outside. It's a. Uh, it actually looks like um, we're in end of days time here in Madison, Wisconsin. I will tell you that it's a. Uh, Interesting. I actually had to turn on my air conditioner last night in order to go to sleep because it was too warm. Oh yeah. It's well. It's not necessarily the temperature. It's also just. Uh, it's very dark in the middle of the day, and it's it's raining. Um, listen, that's not interesting for anyone. Let's. Uh, so, so here's the thing. We know that Chris Davis is not as good um, probably for the rest of the season as he was for the, the season's first four games or until now or whatever, right? And we know that uh, Mike Morris, uh, while he has, um, you know, uh, certainly the opportunity to, to be an above-average hitter, uh, that he's not going to be the same Mike Morris that uh, started off the season. Um, I think this is pretty well established. Um, I mean, well, first of all, about either of those guys or anyone else, do you think that, A, um, for whatever reason, they've established new levels, or B, if they had, or if we were to look at them, what would we be looking for them to have uh, have established new levels? Yeah, I don't think we can find anyone who's established a new level in seven days. I think for that kind of drastic realignment of our perception, someone would have to add, like, 10 miles an hour to their fastball, <laughs> or Guru would have to hit, you know, 10 home runs in four days. Or I mean, the, the magnitude of the performance... Uh, would have to be so remarkable as to suggest a total overhaul of the player's skill set that it's uh, outside the realm of reason that we should change our opinion on just about anyone uh, in, a, in a week's time. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned with regard to pitchers that, you know, for, if, for example, a pitcher, if Tom Malone showed up and he had a 95-mile-per-hour fastball, um, right. it, did, it seems like because Tom Malone's already a, a player who – is able to survive as a major leaguer off of command and an excellent changeup. So, yeah, if he's throwing 10 miles per hour faster. Here's a question, though. Is there anything that's similar for a batter where we where we could say, oh, this is a new established level in, like, you know, within uh, one or two, you know, either plate appearances or batters faced? No. I, I don't think so. I think right. the, we don't have the ability to measure. Um, I, I think the corresponding um, – Skill uh, for a hitter versus like pitcher velocity would be something along the lines with bat speed. Um, so you'd be looking at a guy who I don't know swung the bat at 70 miles an hour and now swinging the bat at 100 miles an hour. You know whatever the the actual numbers are. And uh, if we had text data, maybe we could pop, set up some kind of barriers and saying, you know, this is uh, you know the average speed off bat for a guy who's you know a slap hitter who doesn't make very hard contact and then all of a sudden he's hitting screaming line drives all over the place. Uh, but even then, you know, we don't have that kind of data to know whether it's predictive. So I think in general, it's much more easier to spot significant skill trends in, in pitchers than it is with hitters. Yeah. Um, I will also say, again, a weather-related update. Every time uh, – there have been a couple times, Cameron, um, and the listener will know this, when your voice has become uh, sounding a little bit like a computer. And that is every time that's happening, it's because there's a giant flash of lightning outside my window. So I just want to uh, I want to make it clear that we are we are recording this podcast under duress or at least one of us is you don't seem to care. 
<laughs> I like how you're trying to make uh, excuses for the fact and, and hide up the, hide the fact that I actually am a computer. Well, there's that too. But uh, we're trying trying to always to find ways uh, uh, for the people not to see that for what it is. Uh, listen, okay. So here's a question then. We know that uh, especially for these batters like Mike Morse, Chris Davis. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you'd put uh, who else has Coco been Coco Crisp. Uh, Coco Crisp. All right, Todd Frazier. Yeah. Uh, Justin Upton, despite the fact that he's good, is probably not going to survive this the season um, with a WRC plus over 300 while also striking out clearly, uh, nearly 40% of the time. These are things that will not be sustained. Here's a question I have for you, though, and it has to do a little bit more um, from, uh, behavioral sort of thing, is that even though these first seven, eight games, whatever, of the season um, represent an arbitrary – you know, th- it, these are arbitrary endpoints, right – this that's not necessarily the way that um, that fans certainly see them. That's not the way that baseball writers see them, and it's not even perhaps the way that organizations see them. Right? That uh, owing to something maybe called the primacy effect, which I believe is a, is a sort of cognitive bias. I might be wrong about that. It, it seems very likely that um, anyone, even a well-meaning person, could put more weight on these performances. And thus, for example, could give these players more playing time in the future. Or uh, on the flip side, in the case of John Axford, about whom um, Jeff Sullivan wrote somewhat convincingly uh, yesterday, Monday, uh, it could be said that a player's early poor performances, despite the lack of evidence um, for their being permanent in any way, those could also affect the player. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about um, the way that these performances early on the way that they might affect playing time going forward, um, you, you can use any historical examples you need to. That would be pretty interesting. Well, I think what you talked about this a little bit last week would be uh, confidence thing that uh, uh, somebody had mentioned. Raphael Bengport, uh, right. Yeah. Yes, right. So, uh, you know, like I think if you're John Axford, you've probably lost a significant amount of confidence from opening day. You were looking the reclamation season and proving that last year was a fluke, and now all of a sudden every pitch you throw was over the wall. I would imagine that John Axford is probably tinkering with things right about now and is uh, likely to do things differently uh, because of the results that he's gotten in the first week. Then, you know, I think for a player it's probably tough to maintain that I'm just going to keep doing the stubbornness over and over even if the results aren't what you would expect. So um, I think, you know, when a player has significantly negative results, my guess is that they do start... Hey, so that happened. <laughs> Did it, it <laughs> or what, what, what happened? I was just very close. <laughs> yeah, my uh, um, internet connection did not appear to like it. Anyway, uh, yeah. let's try and uh, pick up where he's left. Did you say, I think you were saying, my guess is that, I think is the, the last words you said. Uh, uh, well, I don't it? remember exactly what I was saying, but <laughs> my guess is that uh, I said something before the lightning strike that I don't remember. <laughs> But I can hearken back to your conversation <laughs> with Brandon McCarthy, where he mentioned that, uh, you know, he threw a couple of cut fastballs, which he's been throwing almost exclusively for, uh, you know, the last couple of years. They got centered up, hit pretty well. He got frustrated, and he switched to a four-seam fastball. And, you know, I think we can see that the results do have an influence on the player's process. This is, you know, maybe a larger mental question, but I would imagine it's hard for athletes to continue to do the thing that causes them to 
or at least appeared to cause them to fail in the first place. What is it? I mean, this is this is something that gets very much into, uh, I guess, behavioral psychology or something of this sort. But there's something that even even um, even as a reasonable person, um, knowing that you could be potentially waiting too strongly, um, the the outcome, the results of a certain thing, even though the process seems fine, uh, it. it um, it's it still uh, people can fall subject to this. I, I'm curious as to I mean, what do you know about this? Uh, this I don't know if this ventures into economics, psychology, uh, maybe neuroscience, something like this. But do you know where this comes from? Uh, I think you're you're hoping that you're conducting a podcast with Russell Carlton, <laughs> which you are not. So well, does Russell defer... does Russell know about this though? Uh, he has a PhD in behavioral psychology. I believe. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, he's a, he's a very smart guy, and, and this is up his alley. Uh, this is not so much up my alley. Uh, we didn't really so much in my economics classes. But I do think, you know, um, from what I understand of, of humans that I know and of myself, it is difficult to uh, just kind of believe in uh, the outcomes of certain events are out of your hands. And, you know, like not to get too morbid, but I know that, like, you know, when I got diagnosed with leukemia, a lot of well-meaning people started suggesting that I eat certain things in order to, uh, you know, remove the causes. And, you know, there were a lot of suggestions of things I could do in order to make sure that the leukemia didn't return after chemo when all of the science says that leukemia is completely random and there's nothing you can do to cause it or to uh, ascertain why one person gets it and another doesn't. So, you know, people certainly meant well and they, they, they cared, but their offers of help were not all that useful. Right, but so the but the arbitrariness of it is the thing that's frightening, right? And I'm sure that as it might have been frightening for those people who are you know giving you suggestions uh, when you're diagnosed with leukemia, I'm sure that um, I mean you know it's not it's not that necessarily that his life is in his hands, but for for John Axford, this is uh, you know I'm sure that some of his identity is tied up to to being a pitcher, right? And just like any any hitter or pitcher who's struggling, you say, "What? Um, how do I remove this problem from my life? There must be uh, something I could be doing." Yeah, I think in general we believe that we have larger influence on the outcome of of events in our life than is actually possible. So, you know, my guess is that Axford believes that he's giving up home runs almost exclusively because he's doing something wrong. When you know, perhaps uh, he has thrown some pretty good pitches that were just. Uh, also hit well, a good feat of batting skill from the other side. Uh, you know, I think in general we want to believe that we can heavily influence all the outcomes of our life. But you know, maybe we can't. But for Axford, it's probably in his best interest to, if he's doing something incorrectly, figure out what it is and at least uh, minimize the error on his own side. Right. And I will note that uh, this, the, I suppose these are actually questions I could ask John Axford himself. Uh, when Milwaukee returns, or when the Brewers return to Milwaukee, uh, and um, I'm, sure, I'm sure he would love to talk to you about uh, blown saves. Well, no, but the nature of—I uh, mean, he's asked the question a lot, and a lot of times the question is like, "What are you doing wrong?" But you know, right. I think perhaps an interesting question to say is, "Maybe, um, maybe you're not doing something wrong." Is that how does that make you feel? <laughs> yeah, uh, but I think this, like this is one of those things where. Uh, you know, I mean, you're free to ask him and maybe he'll give you a good answer, but I feel like the uh, way that the media and, you know, athletes themselves portray these kinds of things is when you screw up, 
it is on you to, you know, be accountable and be a man and stand up and say, I blew it. Don't look for excuses. And so if Axford were to say, yeah, maybe I'm not doing anything wrong, I don't know how that would, would go over well uh, with both the fan base and maybe even his teammates and coaching staff. Right, right, right. So it's a, it, that's sort of the thing that uh, an analyst can make that point, but for the player himself – uh, essentially to eschew responsibility or to assign the responsibility to, to chance slash randomness, that's, uh, you, you, that's it's it's almost sort of like a personal marketing maneuver because you have your teammates right there and they're like, oh, what, we're just going to blame chance for the whole season? Right. I mean, I think, you know, I've heard some pitchers talk about essentially, uh, you know, dips theory and, uh, you know, the chance that goes into batted balls, you know, finding holes. I mean, I'll allude to it occasionally when they say it's a game of inches or sometimes the ball just finds holes or whatever. But, you know, I think there's been times, I can't cite one offhand, but I vaguely remember over the last few years where a pitcher would give up 13 or 14 hits. Maybe Roy Oswalt last year might have done this. Give up a ton of base hits, and then after the game, it was like, eh, you know, a bunch of balls just found holes. And the fans, because it sounded like he was, uh, you know, not being accountable and not standing up for that because he gave up a lot of hits. And I, I think in general, the perception is that you should just say, yep, that was on me, I screwed up, and that's you know, the manly, responsible thing to do, whether it's true or not. Right, right, right. Now, a, a, a sort of interesting um, case in light of what we're discussing here is that of Roy Halladay's first start, at least. Yeah, because Halladay's first start, um, he both – allowed however many runs uh, and looked poor all around. Uh, and yet, I think he posted a single-game you know, XFIP, like one of the best uh, of the first week of baseball or something like that. Now, uh, in light of his second start, uh, which was um, you know, uh, not as strong uh, even on a peripheral level, uh, you know, that, that's, that uh, I guess, adds more data to this conversation. Oh, that was very close. We are under duress here, Dave Cameron. In any case, uh, yeah, his first start, nine strikeouts in ni- uh, versus 19 batters, which is like, you know, that's like Craig Kimbrell-esque. Um, and yet he... Sorry. I will note that I put out on Twitter that the heavens were trying to smite you with lightning, and three people have responded, it's only a matter of time. Uh, um, good all right so listen what i was saying cameron was what i was saying was that roy halliday's first start is sort of an interesting case in terms of um a a weird combination of of um, a pitcher doing something that would seem to help him prevent runs um, but in the same hand also not preventing runs and what this would cause in terms of, I don't know, confirmation bias or, uh, or whatever within, within um, you know, the Phillies organization, within Roy Halladay's own self, et cetera. Uh, again, his second start um, reveals that maybe there are some other problems there. But I'm curious how you look at this first start, that first start for Halladay. It, it seems like Tim Lincecum did this a lot last year, too, where the peripherals were there, but the results were not. Yeah, I think there's been some studies that have shown that there's actually uh, problems with using FIP-like metrics on pitchers who uh, are injured or we might think are injured. And it's a kind of an interesting question, right, of whether, uh, you know, because we, we generally know that the, the dips idea and the concept of uh, batted ball responsibility um, works 
primarily for pitchers who have already been selected to be of major league quality. If you or I just took the mound, our FIP would be very high, or our BABIP would be very high, uh, and and it would be our fault because we were lobbing meatballs in there. So the, the spread of talent between pitchers selected to pitch at the major league level is small in this area, which is why we don't see um, you know the year-to-year consistency in terms of ordinal rank. But I think uh, you know it's possible that an injured pitcher could lose whatever that skill was that selected him into that position in the first place. So maybe that these kind of ideas of bad as ball responsibility don't apply to him anymore. Or on the other hand, it could be that a pitcher who performs Hey, uh, podcast officials uh, have convened and they agree that uh, the conditions are unsuitable to continue recording the podcast. Okay, we well, called it. This is the first weather-shortened podcast. This is episode 322, I believe. Wow. Yeah. That's a good street. Yeah, it's pretty Maybe good. Maybe we should look into a retractable roof for you. Yeah, as long as if that roof protected me from the heavens, then I think that would do it. Uh, I think but that in, is the point of roof. Yeah, that's right. Uh, anything anything to add before you're cut off again? Uh, I hope you live to do this again next week. <laughs> that's a, literally the nicest thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> yeah, it, it will probably go down now. Okay, uh, that has been uh, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. You still there? Yep. All right.